Okay, everybody. Hello, this is Missy Maris, and this is The Legal Brief. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, I'm bringing in my executive producer and my partner in true crime, Lauren Mincer-Clark. Lauren, I want to introduce you to our audience. They've been so amazing, have so many great questions about the trials that we've been covering. And now we're getting into the conviction of Jesse Smollett. So jump in here and uh, introduce yourself so and tell me what's been going on. I am so excited. I'm, you've been doing such a great job holding down the floor until I've been able to join in. I'm so excited that I can finally jump in with you. Um, you know, we have been doing this together, you know, as, for TV for years. And so I'm so excited because here's the thing. And this is why we wanted to do this. You and I, when we do it for TV or even on just our regular selves, we talk about these things for at least a half hour, an hour, and it's two minutes is seen on television, you know, because they have a million topics that have to go on. But now everyone gets to kind of get everything. We get to ask all of the questions and just like, I get to pick your brain and everyone gets to hear. So that's kind of what I'm here to do is ask the questions that everyone on social media, on this app that are coming in and asking, and just kind of just get to have, you know, that conversation with you. I'm so excited. Yes, me too, Lauren. And as you said, we have, we've been working on these cases for years and years and years. We talk about this behind the scenes. You know, we'll be on the phone for like an hour, two hours, but we only have (laughs) two and a half minutes usually to get everything out. And this case, Jesse Smollett, you and I were covering this when it first broke back in 2019. So we've been following every detail of this story. And now we're culminating in the trial. It's complete. Yes. The verdict came in yesterday, which is a big deal. I mean, here's the thing, just as the quick recap, we know that the trial happened. The verdict came in yesterday. So he was charged with six counts of disorderly conduct, Um, but he was found guilty on five of those six charges. So my first immediate question to you, as soon as that came in, you know, what's, what was your reaction? What's your reaction to this? Yeah, so having watched the whole trial, Lauren, Mm -hmm. I think that we have to go over some of the basics of this case. So what's disorderly conduct? Because this there's serious charges here. These are felony charges. So Mm -hmm. disorderly conduct in many states is something like resisting arrest. You know, it can it's a very, very ambiguous term that is defined state to state differently. So the charge of disorderly conduct can mean very different thing depending on what jurisdiction and what venue that you're in. Uh, in Illinois, the disorderly conduct statute is super broad. So it says a person is criminally liable mm-hmm. for disorderly conduct when he or she knowingly doesn't act in such unreasonable manner as to alarm or disturb another per- person and to pr- or to provoke a breach of peace. So that is a incredibly broad statute. And in Illinois, that can encompass so many different types of behavior. And filing a false police report is one of those. And there's some precedent. There's not a lot of cases. This is definitely the highest profile case brought under this statute relating to false police reports that Illinois has seen, that Chicago has seen, but it's not unprecedented. So the statute is incredibly broad. That was the first thing I noticed when we came into this trial, that this encompassed something that this filing false police reports that might normally not be a felony in another state. This also, yeah, so this is a jurisdiction that takes this very seriously. Chicago, of course, 
uh, has a, has issues with crime, has high crime rate. So yes. filing a false police report is is taken incredibly You're seriously. Taking resources. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's resources okay. and it's money. And we heard the special mm-hmm. prosecutor during this case say that it was over 3,000 hours of time and cost more than $100,000 for the city. So that's just a little backdrop of what we were talking about here. But having watched all the trial, having watched all of the testimony, I was not surprised by a guilty verdict. Not at all. Now, as you said, Lauren, and this is the question, the number one question that I have been receiving (laughs) regarding this case convicted on why why only five of the six right why only five of the six and just so everybody understands all of the counts are the same they just relate to different times and different instances of smollett making reports okay so the first five counts are reports and these are the ones that he was convicted these all took place in january and they relate to these different instances where jesse smollett made reports to officers about what happened to him that night about this purported attack. Uh, So count one was 2.45 a.m., 45 minutes after the purported attack that he was the victim of a hate crime. He said two attackers put a rope around his neck. Count two refers to Smollett telling the same officer he was the victim of a battery, describing the attackers as beating and pouring bleach on him. So we're talking 45 minutes after the purported attack. That's count one and count two. Mm. Counts three and four are later that morning at 6 a.m. making the same claims, but to a different officer. Okay, so we're all still in this same, you know, really, really short period of time after the after the alleged attack. Now, count five is 7.15 p.m. Okay, so now we're going into the following day, but this is all still January. Count six is the only one that is later in time. It's about two weeks later on February 14th, 2019, where he told a different officer that he was the victim of an aggravated battery. So just so everybody understands what happens in a trial, and Lauren, I know that you and I have covered countless, countless trials, but I think sometimes this concept gets a little bit murky because it can be confusing. Prosecutors have to prove every charge, every count, beyond a reasonable doubt. So they hold Mm -hmm. that burden. If you if a jury believes count one, it doesn't mean they have to believe count two. Same, you know, goes down the line. So here it appears and I wasn't in the jury room and I I love to hear what juries have to say about why they came to conclusions, although they're Mm -hmm. under no obligation to do so. But it seems like they did not find that there was evidence to support that that uh that charge two weeks later on uh february 14th so they they separated that one out and they found him guilty on the other five that were much more close in time now this is a very interesting thing because with any conviction you can expect appeals right that's just the way it right and and we know that immediately after immediately after the trial with I mean, honestly, his attorneys came out with a statement, you know, saying that they respected the decision, but they would be appealing. So we know it's happening. Oh, it's happening. Yes, of course. Yes. And you're right. It was on the courthouse steps, barely two steps no, yeah. out of that courtroom courtroom. <laughs> and the defense yeah. was already saying they were appealed. Not a surprise. And 
the basis for an appeal is usually, and I'm sure this will be part of the appellate argument, that the judge should have let certain evidence in but did not, or the judge let certain evidence in that was too prejudicial. It can it usually relates to what's called judicial error, and the appellate has to prove that the judicial error uh, was was so egregious that it that the trial actually came out differently than it would have, but for the evidence that that got in that shouldn't have or or whatnot, but for that judicial error. So it's a high standard, but you always see the appellate attorneys go through the record and they pick out every single thing that could be potentially problematic and fall under that category. Here, there's another argument, and the defense attorneys have already said that the fact that Smollett was convicted on five of the six charges, but not the six. The six was an acquittal that that's inconsistent and that it goes against the weight of the evidence, which is another appellate argument that's very, very hard to win. But their argument is going to be it does not make sense. This is the simplest way to say it, Lauren. It doesn't make sense. If the jury doesn't believe that he's guilty of number six and the prosecutor didn't fulfill their burden, how the heck is he being uh, is he found guilty on the other five? So that's going to be a piece of that appellate argument and certainly something that we're going to look for as this goes on, because the gut reaction of the public and the gut reaction of everybody watching this trial is hmm, that doesn't really make too much sense. Now, I don't know if that's going to win the day in an appeal. Appeals are very complicated and they're very specific to what came out. They're limited to the four okay. corners of the courtroom and what came out in that court proceeding. But it's a hard argument to win, but that's what seems to be a sticking point for the defense team on this case as they move into the appellate stage. Very interesting. I, at the very, I mean, it's obviously it's very far from over because uh, I mean, th- there's been there's uh, they've already kind of pushed it in this direction that that's where they're going. But you know, and what I'm interested in is because also we saw immediately after the special prosecutor also, you know, brought up this idea of, you know, perjury has been mentioned a lot and because of Jesse, of them taking the stand. And so I want your thoughts on that because that was another really interesting part of this and the potential fallout. Yes, this is a big piece of the case because, remember, Smollett took the stand and defendants are under no obligation to do so. In this case, he did. And the prosecutor, special prosecutor, did come out after the case and say not only did he insult the jury's intelligence. I mean, these were his words, right? He insulted the jury's intelligence by wanting them to Mm -hmm. believe this story. But he also went on the stand and perjured himself. So... Taking the stand and committing perjury or allegedly committing perjury, because that's a completely separate crime that would be a completely separate case, charges could be brought separate and apart from what we saw in this trial, specifically relating to perjury. Perjury is lying under oath. And the prosecutor would have to prove that Smollett was lying under oath and that he knew he was lying under oath. Okay, so that would be the case. It's unusual for prosecutors to bring perjury cases when a defendant is convicted. It's not impossible. It's a very, it's a legally viable uh, charge to bring, but it's very uncommon. Do you think that it's interesting that, do you think that it's interesting that he's already brought it up or is that common as well? Because I just think it's interesting that he dropped that bomb uh, immediately as well. Yes, Lauren, it is interesting that he brought it up. And I'll tell you, I think there's another reason for it, separate and apart from bringing another case for perjury against Jesse Smollett. And I'll tell you what it is. 
Right now, we finished the guilt phase of the trial. That's the part of the trial where the jury determines whether or not someone is innocent or guilty. There's a whole other part of the trial that's going to happen, and that's the penalty phase. And during the penalty mm -hmm. phase, the very judge who sat through this entire case is going to hear what are called aggravating and mitigating factors. So the prosecution presents aggravating factors, which will, uh, which will, then they'll argue that Smollett should have a harsher sentence. The defense team, on the other hand, presents mitigating factors and the mitigating factors are his argument for a lighter sentence. And this is what happens in any case where you have a penalty phase hearing and it's decided by the judge. And the, the prosecutor in this case, as part of that case in the penalty phase, in order to convince the judge of whatever sentence they're going to seek, the state is going to seek, can use the fact that Jesse Smollett perjured himself. That's going to be part of his argument, that it should be a that harsher people. sentence. Mm -hmm. He perjured himself on the stand. Not only... Not only did he you know, take up all the time of the Chicago Police Department, not only did he waste all these resources, not only is it so egregious, he's been found guilty of, of, of faking this attack on, you know, grounds where there are people who suffer from uh, racially charged mm. or yes. sexually charged attacks. So this is attacks based on sexual orientation and discrimination. So it's extra egregious for those factors. And we heard him say that. Well, not only that, but he also had the audacity to get on the stand and tell these lies. So that's going to be part of that penalty phase. And I think that's the reason, Lauren, why he brought that up right out the gate on those courtroom steps. We're going <laughs> to be hearing about that in the next part of this case. Right. Which, and obviously, and what is he potentially facing? What, what is, what do you, what do we know what that is? Yeah, we do. So for each, uh, these are, these are, uh, these are felony charges and okay. they each carry a three year sentence. Now, because they all come out of the same nucleus of, of an incident, right? So it's a mm -hmm. singular incident mm -hmm. as opposed to multiple different crimes. It means that it, when he's convicted, if he were to serve time, he would likely serve time concurrently. Now, concurrently means that he could get, hypothetically, the harshest sentence is three years, right? That's the max for each count that he's convicted. But concurrently means that he would only serve three for all charges, as opposed to three times five, right? So it, that would mm -hmm. be consecutively, that he could serve three years for count one, three years for count two, three years for count three, you know, and so on and so forth. But uh, when you when you serve it all at the same time, then it, it, the maximum is three years. Now, because he doesn't have a criminal history and mm -hmm. this is his first brush with the law, the defense team is going to be arguing for probation. And that's not out of the uh, ordinary for that right. to happen in okay. this type of case. So he could be anywhere from probation to a maximum of three years, the prosecution absolutely going to be focusing on the perjury piece. The defense, and this is something we spoke about before, Lauren, they're going to say, well, he wasn't convicted of all six charges. He was only convicted of five. And they're mm -hmm. going to try and use that inconsistency to say he should be treated more leniently because of that. So all of these things that are coming out and all of the, the way that this fell and the, the way the chips are falling with the jury and the testimony, it's all going to matter significantly for the purposes of the penalty phase of the case, not just the appellate phase, for the next phase where there will be uh, a courtroom hearing about all of these issues. It's interesting. 
there, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to still come with this um and I, it will be interesting what do you think just what is your what is the you know what are the next steps so what what's going to be heard next what what's you know comes what's the timeline from here yeah so the sentencing hearing hasn't been scheduled yet i think we'll probably mm-hmm. have a date in the near future i mean it's not going to be right away because what happens both sides uh write these sentencing mo- the sentencing memos so they both put their recommendations in writing supported by case law and None of these numbers come out of the blue, right? So there's sentencing guidelines and all of these pre-sentencing memos are sent to the judge. The judge has time to review them. Then the next piece is more, you could have more testimony. You could have more people come up and testify as far as aggravating factors and mitigating factors. Yeah. So the prosecution definitely going to focus on the, the, the severity of the, uh, the dupe, I'll call it, right? So the severity of mm-hmm. the the allegations that were made, he's now been found guilty that this was a hoax, this was not true, and the severity of that on the resources of the police department. And again, that the issue of perjury, that's all going to come up with the prosecution. The defense, on the other hand, will focus on the fact that he doesn't have a criminal history, that he was only convicted on five of those six. They may have witnesses come up and attest to his character. We heard from some witnesses like his agent during the trial he doesn't even really like publicity and attention. We may hear more uh, witnesses on that front. With and so there's going to be a right. whole other proceeding mm-hmm. here. Well, probably look. At, I mean, a month or so. Every jurisdiction is a little bit different. It's not going to be way far in the future, but uh, we're not going to see it happen in the next you know couple of days because it's a little bit more complicated than that and takes a little more time. The appellate process, however. He'll probably be long done serving whatever sentence he does. Whatever it is by then. Right, right. Probation or jail, regardless of what it is, even if it's jail time, I don't see him getting the maximum. This is me personally. Again, I'm a New York lawyer. I don't practice in that jurisdiction. Everything changes very much jurisdiction, jurisdiction. I would highly doubt he would get the maximum. Probation is definitely a possibility. But because of that just suck of resources that happened during that time and that he took the stand in his testimony that, I mean, that could be very detrimental to him in that penalty phase. Cause again, the decision maker, the same judge that heard it the first time around. So that's something to take into consideration, but yeah, so that'll all be long decided. The appeal probably won't have even have been, you know, it'll just have been filed <laughs> by the time his, everything will be done by then. <laughs> but he, his defense wow. team has said they want to clear his name. So you're definitely, regardless of that, we're definitely going to see that appeal happen. Oh, man, it's, it's going to be interesting. This is a very interesting one. And it was a very interesting uh, verdict yesterday. And oh, I, this is why this is why I'm so excited that we're doing a podcast, because I just there's so much to break down and to really kind of understand it, because it's just all of these things are factors that I don't think that everyone just really kind of just understands the you know intricacies of. Right. No. And actually, you know, as far as this case go- is concerned, it it seemed pretty straightforward, but it actually was a very, um, uh, it, it had a lot of facts, a lot of details, a lot of external factors that were going on in the media before the case actually went to trial. And then the way it played out in the courtroom, I mean, Jesse Smollett took the stand and actually surprised everybody by taking the stand. A lot of people did not think he would ultimately take the stand because for any defendant, that's a risky situation. And in this case, while I was watching him and just, just watching his demeanor and, and all of that uh, he, er, and reading the reports of what happened on direct examination, not so bad. I mean, direct is pretty direct is your lawyer, right? So that's the best it's right. going to get. 
as far as taking the stand. It's never <laughs> right, right, a right, pleasant right. experience, but that's going to yes. be the most, uh, that that's what you practice for. You know, you spend a lot of time preparing with your attorney behind the scenes. You know, the lawyers are working 24 seven during trial. You're prepping yes. with your client every day. You're going, if they're taking the stand, you're going over this. So there's no stone left unturned. <laughs> But then cross-examination, it was a very, very heated and aggressive exchange with prosecutors at every turn. Yes. yes. And so uh, I'm not sure that that played well to the jury. But on top of that, the prosecution got in there and pulled apart so many inconsistencies. So all of those police reports that are the subject of this case. So this isn't just the police reports are serving as evidence relating to a separate crime. The, the police reports really are the, they're the, the crux of the case. That's what this case is about. Were they real or were they not? And did he know that at right. the time? So those police reports, they're made closer in time to the alleged incident, right? That's why usually police reports are very, um, are evidence of of what the truth is as far as a jury is concerned because they they take place closer in time to what happened when you're talking about a trial i mean even this case this was 20 this happened in 2019 it's 20 almost 2022 right so a lot of time has passed memories have right. faded and so the 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 jury really heard the prosecution go uh, take take Smollett to task on all of those inconsistencies that he really failed to explain. And on the flip side, the prosecution witnesses, the brothers who were uh, allegedly retained by Smollett to stage this fake attack, they had such detailed testimony, Lauren, about their interactions, their conversations right. with Smollett. There was corroborating evidence. There were a couple text messages. There was a $3,500 check that was cashed. And Smollett tried to explain that away, but it, it very obviously the jury did not believe him, right? That's why we have a sentence. So do you think, do you think that he took the stand because they of their strong testimony and their stories and everything that kind of how that lined up you think that that kind of yeah. put them in like a corner I, a little bit or I, I do lauren because here's the thing the defendant doesn't have to take the stand and as a defense attorney right. you only make a recommendation your client ultimately decides whether or not they take the stand that's something that a lot of people don't know because the lawyer doesn't drive the bus they just they tell you all the good the bad and the ugly and all the different scenarios that could play out so the lawyer's going to make a recommendation. So then you yeah, decision, yeah. The lawyer's right. ultimately going to make a recommendation and they're going to say you should or should not do this, right? But usually mm -hmm. a defense lawyer will wait until the prosecution's case has closed in order to make that determination because the prosecution has the burden of proving a case beyond a reasonable doubt. Many times... The, the defendant's testimony might not be necessary or could even be detrimental because the prosecution may have failed to fill, fulfill the burden of their case. Or there's a strong possibility that a jury could find that. So in that case, probably not worth the risk of putting the defendant on the stand. Right. Uh, and the other piece is that the the defendant, uh, you know, may have had something in their past or may have had an area of inquiry that would not normally come out during the trial. That may come out if he does take that he or she does take the stand. Uh, you, you open yourself up if you take it on, on the stand. Right. Right. Exactly. You you open up a can of worms that might normally have never been a, a part of the case. So those are all of the factors that uh, the the defendant the defense will consider. Also, in some cases, there may be other ways outside of the defendant's testimony to get their story on the record. Right. There might be documents. There might be video. There could be a, a whole bevy of other types of evidence that could 
get the story out and, and get that narrative in front of the jury. But in this case, there was really no other source for Smollett's version of the facts, which is, I mean, it's complicated. It's that, yes, he was friends with these brothers. He, he retained them to help him lose weight for a music video. That's why he paid the 3,500. He thought he might hire them for right. security. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a convoluted story, right? Yeah. That's not getting it, out it, there. It's very, that's, it, 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 was, it was very hard. Yes. Yeah. And there's no other way for it to get out in front of the jury unless the jury hears it from him. So I think after the, the testimony of the brothers came out and the defense was not really able to get there, it, everything with the defense with them was credibility, that they were self-interested, that they, you know, they're, they're, they called them like mastermind criminals, right? So they're painting them in this right, light right. completely, uh, that, that they're trying to get that narrative out to the jury. There's these mastermind criminals that they're yes. not credible for reasons because they're self-interested. Well, the defense really didn't impugn their credibility enough. And I think that, and that's just, you know, you know, you'll have, you have the case you're dealt with. They just didn't have it, you know, and it didn't right. come out on the record that mm. their testimony was pretty strong. So at the end of the day, you're left with a choice. It's like your Hail Mary. You better take the right. stand, right. right? You better take the stand because no one is in a position to explain this but you. You're the only person who can tell your side. But so you. I think that's why I'm not sure if it worked to the, it, it, you know, obviously he was convicted. I'm not sure if it would have gone the other way had he not taken the stand, right? I'm not sure it made a difference. I do think it can make a difference for mm. the purposes of the penalty phase, because if the judge really does think that he perjured himself and, and that's part of the prosecution argument in that penalty phase of the case, that could certainly be a factor that you wouldn't want, you know, on the prosecutions in the prosecution's basket when you get down to a penalty, because these, th again, this case, these are low level felonies, even though they're quite serious, they're very, yes. very serious. They're low-level felonies, mm -hmm. and they could result in just probation, especially with somebody who does not have a prior criminal record. So right. it's never easy it, decisions, it, it, Lauren. Let's just put it that way. From a defense right. perspective, you, you're never having an easy decision about that particular issue. Juries like to hear from defendants, and it's all about— Of course. Yeah. I mean, when defendant takes the stand, we, like, lose our minds. We're so happy as analysts because right. we want more <laughs> facts. You want to know it all. And that's right. the of best source. And that it's always where it gets interesting. It's always where it gets interesting. So this case is really, I mean, we're, even though it's done, the trial is done, there's a lot more to come. So we'll continue to cover it. We'll continue to see yep. what happens and, and how yep. this plays out in the penalty phase. Like I said, if I had to predict, I would think either probation or sentence, but not near the maximum. Uh, and and that, again, uh, is just based on the prior criminal history, but the factors that look mm -hmm. this part of the reason that this statute in, in, is so broad in Illinois and part of the reason why it's taken so seriously is because every moment of this, you know, 3000 hours that's spent investigating a case that is not real is taken away right from resources that could be used to protect the people of that city so well see and that's exactly why i felt this this trial and I'll, this is a lot on principle and you know and that's why i was interested about the perjury thing and potential charges because it feels like of all cases this might be one where we could potentially see it just because 
the the principle of what was lo- potentially lost, you know, and what they're claiming was lost with manpower right. and, and the police and all that time in a city that really could use it on so many cases. Yes, and it's super high profile. And yes. it's the reason for the statute is a deterrent effect. That's what it's for. I mean, right. that's that's why it's a felony. Yeah. As opposed to other jurisdictions where you may see it as a misdemeanor. It's not always a felony in every state. So that, that's interesting. Yeah, so it yeah, just depends. Okay. So right. I think you're right. I think this was a very serious case. And we will keep an eye out for the penalty phase and, and see what happens. There may be some um, information that we get from those pre-sentencing briefs that are going to be submitted on both sides. So we'll get a little bit of a look into what the arguments actually are. But I really... Uh, this this was a really complicated trial on what seemed like it would be pretty simple. It ended up being a very complex case with right. repercussions that can go beyond just this case with respect to how strong that the, the law is enforced on that diversion of resources that really is to the detriment of people who are real victims. So only time will tell. We will keep an eye on that one. So, Lauren, in addition very to simple. that, next week... Uh, we're going to dig into Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Yes. So just so everybody knows, the prosecution is, I, I think, probably the last uh, victim is on the stand today. I don't know if her testimony is completed, yes. but the prosecution's probably going to rest uh, either today or early next week. So it's a perfect time to recap that and go back and talk about what the prosecution's case was before the defense puts on a case. Uh, And again, the defense doesn't have to. The defense can do nothing. But I anticipate we will see something from the the defendant's side uh, on that case. So we'll be digging into that. But just as a preview, moving forward for what Lauren and I are going to be covering, because Lauren is not only just on the ground floor of all these trials following these true crime stories, (laughs) but she's also really up on all of the issues surrounding our favorite pop culture icons, the housewives, you know, all of these legal issues yes, that are people, playing out. People are getting in trouble all the time. And it's very much, you know, I, I have worked in entertainment news and um, uh, daytime TV. And so I'm very much in the pop culture world. And a lot of people in the celebrity world also get into trouble and legal things come up naturally. I don't, Misty, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but this is, it's something that just came up just today and just in that vein is Peloton and everything with sex in the city right now. Oh yes. Okay. So quickly, everyone who's listening that has not yet watched the first episode of, and just like that sex in the city, this will be a spoiler alert. Now is your opportunity to log off. We'll give you five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Lauren, I have so much to say on it. Please tee it up. Tell us what happened. Okay. So, so, you know, and just like that is back sex in the city. Everyone's excited. Remember from the pop culture side, when it was announced, everyone was excited, but they were crushed that big wasn't going to be part of it. And then the news teased out that he was, and then everyone was so excited, but then pictures have been leaked floating around, you know, everyone's home during quarantine in New York and they were stuck in their apartments and people got views of sex in the city kind of shooting around New York. And it looked like there was a funeral. And so people had been speculating about that. Well, sure enough in episode one, our beloved big meets his chest. 
but Misty, I actually, when I watched it, what happens? He gets on a Peloton. He gets on a Peloton and he has a heart attack afterwards, but his phone falls in the shower. So he's unable to call and Carrie comes, you know, at the end as he's dying. But the immediate thought that I had, I was devastated. But then I went, how in the world did Peloton sign up to be the thing that kills big? And they've come out with a statement to say that they didn't know what that is. So Misty, immediately I thought, is this, could something happen from this? Because their stock is going down today. Oh my gosh, their stock has gone down significantly today. In fact, I think it's at an all-time low right now. And and yeah. that is why I think you're 100% right, Lauren, that this is not over. So just as a general principle, when there's a product in any movie, in any television show, there's a contract behind that, right? The products just aren't in there. These production companies, shows and movies, right. they can't just take any product and, and show it in their in their film. They have to have an agreement with that company. And oftentimes- yeah, Those products pay money usually to have that placement and it's an agreed upon how they're going to do it and how they're going to work it in. Because that's also, you know, on the producer side, they, they figure out how to creatively, you know, so it's not just too blatant, you know, and- Misty, I thought they did a great job because the first scene, everyone got a Peloton in quarantine. I saw them walk by it and I went, oh, of course. Yeah, it was very right. realistic for right. everyone. It was very realistic for a post-quarantine world. But then what happened? Uh, Misty. Oh. Yeah. No, I, I was I was shocked, too. So as you said, Lauren, not only are these agreements entered into when uh when you're when you're pro have product placement in a television show or a movie usually it's the company with the product that wants to be in in that movie or television show because it's up it's advertising right? right and when that when you have those agreements there's contracts behind that so interestingly enough peloton did come out today and as you said lauren they said they knew that Peloton would be in the show, but they did not know the circumstances that would surround the use of the Peloton. And now we know that Sex in the City, because it's just is so outrageously popular and this reboot has you know, taking everybody by storm. It's, it's really right. It's everybody wants and to know about it. For all spoilers. Right. Like I said, people were taking pictures of anything they could. Right. The, the script is super, super, super secret. So it sounds like from an outside, and obviously we don't have any insider knowledge about this. It sounds like that the Peloton and HBO um, or whatever the production company is entered into an agreement where Peloton would be featured. Peloton did not know about the circumstances in which Peloton would be featured. And the question is, it, does that mean legal liability? And the answer is that it's going to really depend on what that contract says. Having dealt with these types of contracts time and time again for, you know, for various entities and various companies, there's usually a clause in the contract that talks about placement of a product or a person or you know, whatever it is in a negative light. Uh, yes. And so it all depends on what the, that contract says. So all of these deals are really dictated by the language in the contract. So we don't know what that contract says. We may get a little bit of an, a scoop as, as time goes on. Perhaps that information will come out into the public sphere. But I guarantee you that the, the attorneys, the internal attorneys for Peloton are going through that contract right now because 
Peloton is literally their stock dropped. They're, they're bleeding money. Not good. And right. in the Sex in the City episode, Lauren, again, and, and this is, and just like that is what it's called, but not only do they show that happening, Big gets on the Peloton, he's using the Peloton in his house alone, he has an immediate heart attack afterwards. In a scene or two later, another character on the show literally says he should not have gotten on the Peloton. Yeah. And then somebody says, oh. oh, no, 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 it can't be that. But it was, you know, very, to me, I wish I had more enjoyment in television and wasn't always trying to, like, parse out the legal issues. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's exactly where I went. <laughs> right. So everybody else I'm watching it with is tearing up and crying. And don't get me wrong. I'm sad. It was a very emotional episode. But I'm like, hmm, yes. I wonder what the contract said and what clause related to how the product is going to be used. Because that's another component, how the product is going to be used. So I don't know if Peloton just agreed because it's, it was such a big production and had so much you know, there's so much right. viewership, you know, there's going to be a, yes. I mean, this is like something everybody's been waiting for and is super hyped up, but I can't imagine that we won't either a see a lawsuit or that there's something happening behind the scenes and maybe it will never come to the public's attention, but I guarantee this issue isn't just going to be swept under the rug. It's not going anywhere. There's going to be more to it. Yeah, just the, I, I, once I saw that there was an actual the, the financial fallout yesterday, I, I, it was obviously my TV brain. Went, I was like, oh boy, hell in the world. Who approved? Okay, interesting. That was just my <laughs> right. Like, You're oh, like wow. going to read everything a couple more times. Yeah, from now on. I was like, oh, that was an interesting <laughs> agreement. And that, that's what I thought. But then, I, but now seeing the act, the numbers that they're losing, I immediately went, uh oh, this feels like there could be some legal fallout. Right, think, right. And yeah, and it's all about damage. I mean, that's that's really what it is. And usually contracts spell what the damages are. So that this drop and stop oh. might not really, that may be a red herring for what potential damages could be. Contracts usually spell it out, what it means for a breach, what it means, you know, was this a breach? Depends on the language. So there's a lot to dig into, but I guarantee you there's going to be more to the story because... That certainly did not put pellet, didn't make you feel good about getting on your Peloton uh, when nobody else is home, I guess. <laughs> right. When it's everyone's favorite thing. I was, I, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, no, good question, but, Lauren. I, I agree. But good, so it just depends. Is, is that we have this podcast now and these are the things. Anyway, this is, this is what we do. We talk about all of these trials and then all of these other things come up. And I'm excited that we get to talk about it all. Yes, me too, Lauren. And we are so happy to have all of our listeners. And next week, we're going to go live and we'll schedule a room in advance and we'll make sure to take some questions and get an even further dialogue going. There are so many stories out there that we want to cover. Of course, we're going to get into Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, that's probably going to be the most high profile. It's the most high profile trial going on right now. So we'll talk about that. But there's also a lot to be broken down about rust alec baldwin he just got his lawyers told him i think to get off twitter what statements he's made outside (laughs) uh you know in the media and how that's going to impact the growing number of civil lawsuits we'll get into that and we'll cover all of the other of the moment legal stories that uh that continue to come up and about lauren as the literally executive producer extraordinaire to dig through (laughs) all of these issues and bring up these cases that are, that everybody really wants to learn uh, to learn about and truly understand. 
Yes, I'm so excited. And I'm so excited for all of our listeners and to engage with everyone. And that's what I'm going to be here for and helping, you know, get all of these calls so we can make this interactive. And because that's what we want to do. We want to hear what everyone, we want to make sure that people understand these stories, you know, and get all of their regular questions. And you are an attorney and you are brilliant. And I, you know, I love it, but I, you know, so I'm not an attorney. So I have those questions and I go, this might be dumb, Misty, but, and we realize that everyone's asking these questions. So I'm very yeah, happy. Absolutely. Well, we're so excited to engage with you all. So keep an eye out for us. This is The Legal Brief. And thank you so much for listening.